copy of scripture this morning be in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 book of Isaiah chapter 7 be looking at the whole chapter this morning of Isaiah chapter 7 I'll be reading from the English standard version this morning Isaiah chapter 7 beginning in verse 1 In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to me, Ahaz. You and Shir Yashub, your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against uh, Judah, terrifying it, and let us conquer it. For ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Amalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when... He knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and in all pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired behind the river, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand wine, or a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed and with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become a place where cattle are let loose 
and where sheep tread. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Last week we started this series that I'm calling an Old Testament Christmas where we are going to be looking at the Old Testament scriptures concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, God provides prophetic glimpses of the one whose coming we celebrate at Christmas time. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3. Today we look at Isaiah chapter 7, which is this famous promise of the coming of the child, Emmanuel, which means God with us, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that most of you probably have your Christmas tree up. Some of you perhaps do not. We've had a fake Christmas tree for several years, and for the last few years, I have had thoughts of a real Christmas tree. And then I start to think about it. I start to think about all the pine needles and all the resin. And then I start to think, well, what is it going to be like getting that tree through the front door and into its stand without all the pine needles falling off and without me sinning, of course. Regardless of what kind of tree you have, there's just something about Christmas. As adults, it brings back childhood memories. Some of you know that I grew up pretty poor. My father was a drunk, rarely held down a job, and eventually he and my mom divorced. My mother often worked three jobs to support five kids. And so oftentimes at Christmas, we didn't have a whole lot of gifts. I can remember one Christmas, my dad had quit his job. He went out and got drunk and bought these big candy canes and put them on the TV and thought that that would make up for everything that he had done. My mother took our Christmas tree and if you know my mom, some of you have met her, she's not very tall. And I remember her grabbing this Christmas tree and opening the door of our trailer and throwing the tree outside and saying, I guess we will not have Christmas then. I don't tell you that for you to feel sorry for me. I tell you this story to say, even though I had some rough Christmases growing up, I was still excited for Christmas. Something about the lights and all the decorations seemed to make the bad times fade away. It brought joy. And even now, as an adult, I think back to that joy that Christmas brought, and I think... Isn't that what Christmas is supposed to do? Bring light into the darkness and joy into the world? It seems like when we're young, it doesn't take much to get us into the Christmas spirit and all is well in the world, but the older we get, we become more realistic. We, we know it's going to take more than some decorations to give us joy and hope. And I don't know if that is necessarily a bad thing, but I think we often miss what Christmas truly is. If we truly need hope, then it won't be supplied to us by the best of Christmas trees, nor the greatest of Christmas movies, which, by the way, is Elf. Um, what, what the tree and the movies and the singing and all the feel-good stories do for us is allows us to escape for a little bit, a little while, but they don't give us hope. And here in Isaiah chapter 7, the people of God are in serious trouble. And their future looks bleak. However, right in the middle of their fear 
grace-filled season of life, God delivers a message and a sign of hope. This is not a Christmas tree hope. This is not an idea that they can escape from the real world. This is a declaration that a virgin will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole point of this text is about hope. It's not a decorative distraction. It is something to just make us, it's not just something to make us feel good kind of hope. No, it's the source of hope. It's Jesus is the source of hope. And joy for hurting people. And not just in Isaiah's day, but in our day. And so this morning, I want to break this whole passage down for us because I believe there's so much in here that relates to us. So the first thing I want us to see is this, a crisis of conflict. A crisis of conflict. As we look at verses 1 and 2, the conflict is clearly laid out for us. It is giving us this historical setting of these verses, and they paint a picture for us of escalating regional tensions. It is the year 743 B.C., and God's people are divided into two kingdoms. You have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, with Ahaz, who is a descendant of King David as their ruler. And you also have the northern kingdom, which is Israel, with Pekah, the son of Ramalia, as its ruler. Now, at this time in history, the entire region is under threat by a man named Tiglath-Pilzar III who is the king of Assyria. Now, Pekah, the king of Israel, didn't want to pay tribute to Tiglath to buy him off, but he also does not want to be crushed. And so what does he do? He forms an alliance with the king of Syria, who's a man called Razan. And that leaves Ahaz, the king of Judah, out in the cold and vulnerable to Tiglath's attacks and also to the retribution of the northern alliance, which he refuses to take part in. So in verses 1 and 2, we have this crisis of conflict because Rezin and Pekah are going to come and teach Ahaz and the people of Judah a little lesson. So then in verse 2, we have this language. It says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is, when the heirs of David learned that the northern alliance had some plans, and then it says, the heart of Ahaz and his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what does that mean? It means the whole nation was in turmoil and panic. Things looked bleak. and Everyone's filled with fear because the northern alliance may attack them at any moment. And so there's this crisis of conflict. And the people there are all terrified of what is going to happen. And it is in this context that God speaks. Ahaz is preoccupied with what he thinks is a certain siege to come at any moment. And so he's out inspecting the water supplies, making sure that they will have enough water for the coming siege. This is not a bad thing. It's a proper thing to do it's proper planning and so in verse 3 God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to meet him at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field it says now remember Ahaz is in the midst of a crisis and look at the message that Isaiah delivers say to him be careful be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint So you go to this man that's freaking out in fear, and you tell him, don't be afraid. 
Look down at verse 9. And we will notice what God wants to do for Ahaz and for us. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So God wants to strengthen his faith. God wants to strengthen our faith. He wants to teach Ahaz that his confidence, even in the midst of such a crisis, must rest in the Lord, not in some sort of political party, not in a global alliance, and not in a military maneuver. Now we must understand what God is saying. God's not in denial. He knows there are enemies, and the enemies are real. Verse 5 and 6 makes it clear. Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as the king in the midst. So there's a plot to assassinate the king. These are dangerous times. And yet God delivers a crystal clear message. Don't be afraid and if you're not firm in your faith then you will not be firm at all listen god is saying if faith in me is not the firm foundation of your life then all other ground is sinking sand you will certainly fail he is the only firm foundation so we must stand firm in our faith we need to hear this message today we live in difficult and challenging times The stuff that is going on with Ahaz reads like it could be on CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch. Whether our fears are political or whether our fears are personal, we find that we must fight our fears and fight for faith, especially during the Christmas season. If that's you this morning, I want you to be encouraged because I believe this passage will strengthen us to help us fight for faith. What I am saying to you is that when you are in a crisis of conflict, that is the time for your faith to be strengthened. And so we've seen this crisis of conflict, but how is faith going to be strengthened? Let's see that God assures a faithful remnant will be preserved. God assures a faithful remnant will be preserved. Now I know what you're thinking. You're perhaps thinking, well, where is that? I don't read that in these verses. You might be saying, I don't see that. And this is where looking deeper into Scripture gives us some insight. Look again at verse 3. Isaiah is told to take his son with him for the confrontation of Ahaz at the end of the upper pool. Now here we have the name of Isaiah's son, and the name has symbolic significance. Here in chapter 7, we have his firstborn son, and in chapter 8, another son is mentioned. The name of his firstborn son is Shir Yashub. And I love that because that means a remnant shall return. The The boy's name means a remnant shall return. So Isaiah's son is a walking visual aid. If you look back at chapter 6, we would see that God is pronouncing coming judgment on Judah, on his own people. He said these people would be cut down like a tree, and all that will be left is a stump, and that stump that is left is called a holy seed. A faithful remnant will be preserved. And so taking Shib with him was a reminder of that promise. God saying, Isaiah, take your son. So it reminds Ahaz of the promise I just made. That a remnant will return. Listen, all through scripture, faith is the remedy to fear. Yes, judgment is coming. 
Yes, there's difficult days ahead. Yes, there's going to be all kinds of problems. But God still loves His people. God is committed to His church. And we can either focus on the problem or we can focus on the solver of problems. Listen, church. Jesus told His disciples, Don't be afraid. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can either sit back and cower in fear, afraid of what may come next, or we can exercise our faith and know that the call of Jesus Christ is greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. And we can storm the gates of hell, understanding that the forces of darkness and evil have no chance against faith. Or we can sit back and cower in fear and say, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what's coming, God. I, I'm, I'm so afraid of the uncertainty of tomorrow, God. I'm so afraid to step out in faith, God, even though that you've commanded us as a church to storm the gates of hell. Listen, the gates of hell, that a gate is defensive. We are called to go to the gate and storm the gate of hell. And he says in his word that they will not prevail against us. That's faith. Because faith casts out all fear. God is committed to his people and he's committed to his church. Stay with me because it's going to get good. Thirdly, we see that the kingdoms of men will be destroyed. The kingdoms of men will be destroyed. Man looks around and he sees world powers and all these things knocking on the door, but God sees smoldering stubs of wood that will soon be burned up and vanish away. That's the point of verses 4 through 9. Don't be afraid is, is the command. And God then calls Pekah and Raisin names. He calls them names. They are two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You've heard the saying, where there is smoke, there is fire. Well, in this case, there's plenty of smoke, but there is no fire. Ahaz does not need to be focused on them because their flame is gone. And just in case he was not clear, he stops using metaphorical language and he makes it clear. He says, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Raisin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Amalia. The heads of your two enemies will cower in fear, God says. Listen, rulers and dictators and kingdoms all are made up of men. And men can't withstand the purposes of God. God does as he pleases because he is the sovereign ruler of this world. And there is no man that can thwart the plan of God. He will do whatever he pleases. And he says Ahaz... And two generations, their kingdoms will be destroyed. They're just men. They're no match for God. And it is for this reason that our trust is in the Lord. Our trust is in the Lord. So often our issue is one of focus. You see, we're looking in the wrong direction. What I mean by that is, is we fear men. And fear of men robs our heart. And we begin to worry about what others say or what they do or what they think. I've even done this as a pastor. 
I've allowed the fear of men to rob me at times of the joy of ministry. I wonder what so-and-so thinks about this. Or I wonder if, if they're going to be mad at me. Or I wonder if they're going to be upset with me. It can be family members. It can be friends. It can be church members. It can be leaders. It can be lawmakers. You name it. But what helps us is to remember that they are only men. And our confidence does not rest in them. Nor does our value and worth come from them. Your hope. My hope. It's not a product of someone's good favor. Our trust is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Where do I run to when things are bad? I go to God because he's my refuge and my strength. He's a present help in the times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. And though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea and the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. That's from Psalm 46. Listen, Ahaz was given far too much credit to the power of men and not nearly enough credit to the sovereign Lord who rules over everything. Our trust is not in men. And when we place our trust in men, it's a misplaced trust. Trust in the Lord is never a misplaced trust. Not only is our trust in the Lord, but the Lord is on the throne. I think that's something that's sometimes difficult for us to grasp, that the Lord is on the throne. Because we're surrounded with all kinds of trouble and sin. It's easy to look around at times and perhaps even think, where's where's the Lord? And the answer is, he's on his throne. If we go back one chapter to chapter 6, verse 1. It's the year that Ahaz's father, Uzziah, died. And that is when things began to look really dark for the future of God's people. The prophet declares, And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The king is now dead and gone. Enemies are closing in. Things are looking bad. But the Lord's still on his throne. Nations rise and they fall and earthly kingdoms come and go. We just had a day of mourning for a former president. Presidents and politicians, pundits and polls, pop culture, personal convictions, people of all kinds will come and go. They will ebb and flow. While all earthly leaders will fail. What Isaiah needed to learn. What Ahaz needed to learn and what you and I need to learn is that the Lord is still on his throne. No matter your circumstances, no matter how hard your life gets, no matter the troubles and the sorrows and the sacrifice and the pain, no matter the hurts and the tears and the sadness and the suffering, the Lord is on his throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Listen, we stand where we are most secure. And that is in our faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus is on the throne. Bear with me, church, because we're almost to the good part. We're almost there. Now we see this question, because this is sometimes a question that we have. Is it ever okay to ask God for a sign? So we say, asking God for a sign? Question mark. 
Notice the Lord has given two assurances to strengthen Ahaz's faith. A remnant's going to be preserved, and the kingdoms of men are going to be destroyed. And now the Lord gives him yet another encouragement, another reminder of the faithfulness of God. Look what he says to him in verses 10 through 17. The Lord invites Ahaz to ask for any sign, any sign that he can possibly come up with that would help his faith and help him to understand that God would protect his people. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. God says, ask for any sign that you can think of. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Wow. God's offering day has a blank check. You can fill in any amount. His only limitation is his imagination. Can you imagine this? What an unbelievable offer. What would you do? God says, ask me for any sign, I'll do it. Even more unbelievable is Ahaz's response. God says, ask me for any sign. Ahaz, he's super spiritual. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. What in the world is that? I mean, I don't know if, if when you're reading, you read, God says to Ahaz, you ask for any sign that you want, and Ahaz comes back with, I'm not going to put God to the test. I mean, that's not what I would be doing. God says, ask anything, and he says, I'm not going to ask. And Ahaz sounds pious with what he says. It sounds great on the surface. In fact, these are the exact same words that Jesus quotes to Satan. And they come from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where we read, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But let's be clear, the devil was tempting Jesus, and Jesus refused to put the Lord to the test. And it was an act of faith and submission to God by Jesus Christ. He was not going to take the easy way out like Satan wanted him to. Instead, he was going to obey God. However, when Ahaz is invited by God himself to ask for a sign that would encourage him and strengthen his faith, Ahaz appears pious, but in reality, he is expressing his unbelief. What appears to be religious piety is actually irreligious piety. Ahaz sounds pious. But we know from the book of Kings that he was a wicked unbeliever. He was trapped here. If he asked for the sign, he would be submitting to the prophet. If he did not ask, everyone would know that he did not believe. And so that is why he said he would not tempt God. The verb tempt or test is used in a number of ways. If a human tempted God, it would usually mean in rebellion, tempting as a challenge, coming without fear, wanting, or proof. Ahaz pretended piety. And he said... I'm not going to test God. So it's irreligious piety because it lacked any faith at all. Ahaz refused out of fear, not because of his faith. God offers mercy and Ahaz spits in the face of God. God, you can keep your signs for yourself. Now, before you get carried away, before you go, I can't believe that Ahaz would do such a thing. Ask yourself how often have we done similar How often have we rejected the sweet offers of grace and mercy from the Lord? I'll even go one step farther. How often 
Has the Lord placed someone in your path to deliver grace or mercy to you and you rejected it? How often? How often has someone come to you moved by the Spirit of God to deliver to you grace or mercy and you go, nope, I can do it. I learned long ago that irreligious piety gains me nothing. So, just a hint, don't offer me something if you don't want me to take it. Because I'm going to take it. I'll take, and, and listen, I've taken things I don't even like. Because somebody offers it to me. They, Pastor, I really want you to have this. Okay, I'll take it. Because that person's offering it to me because of the kindness of their heart because God has led them to do so. And if God didn't leave them to do so, then they're the one in sin, not me. Let me tell you something. God deserves to be believed. He's God. He can't lie. His word is true and has always been true. He has no ill motivation. And so when he says, ask whatever you want for a sign to Ahaz, that's exactly what God meant. Yet Ahaz does not believe what Isaiah is saying to him. God is not some puny, unreliable God. He does what he says. But notice this, our unbelief can sound so holy and pious even when it's not. We can learn to use our Bible, not to guide our faith and our obedience to God, but in order to keep God at a distance. We can use our Bible to try to get others off our back. Have you ever done that? Trying to, someone's trying to press in on us. Maybe they're going to expose our sin. And we get real good at using our Bible to try to avoid accountability. I wonder if you've ever done that. I wonder if you've ever been like Ahaz and used your Bible wrongly, throwing it out as some sort of smokescreen to cover up the fact that you've not been a person of prayer. Or you've not been a person in your word. Or to cover up some sin in your life. Or to give an excuse as to why you forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Some people haven't really prayed in years. But they're certainly good at using their Bible to cover that fact up. I found that so often we're good at flipping the switch when we need to. And so we can come across like all holy sounding. We know the right words to say, but it's just a cover for our cold, dead heart that's captivated by fear and unbelief, and it's been so for far too long. We're good at irreligious piety. Now listen, this is the situation that Ahaz is in. But God still has mercy. Because we see Ahaz has a heart that's held captive by fear and unbelief. Perhaps like some of ours this morning. And so because of this, he refuses God's offer to strengthen his faith. Because in reality, he has no faith. And yet, despite his unbelief, despite his lack of faith, he still sees God's mercy and kindness towards sinners and the promise of his presence. And this is so great. Because even though Ahaz lacked belief and faith in God, God, without Ahaz's permission, 
stoops down to give him a sign anyway. I'm sure it's not the sign that Ahaz would have chosen if he had actually chosen a sign. However, this is a sign that would speak light into the darkness and the presence of God into the world. Just look at the word of Isaiah in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? It's as if he's saying, have you so easily forgotten my promise of a Messiah And he says, is it too little for you? I sense the anger in Isaiah's voice that Ahaz would dishonor God. And then he says to weary men, Isaiah is speaking of himself and his fellow prophets whom Ahaz misused and slighted. This should cause faithful ministers of God's word that are under the world Indignities to take comfort. And look at what he says. That you will weary my God also. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah says my God. The God he serves. And not Ahaz's God. Because of Ahaz's failure to believe. But praise be to God. The marvelous promise comes in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 quotes this passage of scripture and it refers to the birth of Jesus Christ to the virgin Mary. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the presence of God with us. However, in relation to this verse in Isaiah, many commentators go absolutely nuts trying to figure it out. Here's the problem that most are faced with. The birth of this child is meant to function as a sign to Ahaz. The intention is that his faith would be strengthened in the face of a dire situation. But how can the birth of Jesus Christ, 734 years after the fact, be any kind of sign to Ahaz? So that's the question. And all these scholars come up with all kinds of explanations for this to try to, try to resolve the difficulty. There are several explanations. I'm not going to go through them all, but they all have one thing in common, and that is that they believe that there is a near fulfillment of prophecy and a far fulfillment when it comes to this prophecy in particular. So in this case, it would mean that this prophecy would have to be fulfilled during the time of Ahaz and that it also refers to Jesus. One of the explanations that is most widely accepted is that this prophecy is a reference to one of Isaiah's sons. There are two sons that are mentioned by name. The one here in chapter 7 and then another in chapter 8. Both of them have symbolic names and so maybe one of them is a future type of Emmanuel. However, there's no suggestion of that in the text nor in the context of the chapter. In chapter 8 verse 8, when Emmanuel is used again, it's used as a synonym. For either God or the Davidic king. And not for Isaiah's son. Because it is Emmanuel who possesses the land. It is the land belonging to him. Then Isaiah chapter 11. The prophet will write. For unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. However this is not an ordinary child. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. So again. This can't be speaking of Isaiah's son. The promise of Emmanuel can only point to Jesus Christ. 
His supernatural birth is one major sign that signifies that Jesus is Emmanuel. In the real and true sense. And not just that God is in some way with his people. The doctrine of the incarnation is that God came into this world. That he became flesh. Jesus is not a mere mortal. His words are the words of God. And to be believed. This was the whole point. The presence of God. That God is with us. Incarnate in Jesus Christ. With us in the sense that he is on our side. Nature reveals that God is above us. The law reveals that God is against us. But the gospel reveals that God is with us. To defend from the power of sin. And to deliver us from the penalty of sin. That's the point in all of this. God being with us. Ahaz says... I'll bring an army. But God said, I'll bring a child. He's with us. He is God. It's not Assyria with us. Or God without us. Or God against us. But God with us. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this passage of Scripture. Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us, or rather we with him, in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. May we never forget that the presence of God is with us. God with us. The last thing I want to share with you this morning is this. God will save his people. God will save his people. Here's a question. How is something that is way off in the future going to strengthen the faith of Ahaz? Let me just say, I don't think the answer to that question is really that difficult. And I fail to understand why commentators do interpretive gymnastics to explain this passage of Scripture. The answer is really simple, especially when we stop and consider that the hope of heaven, which is in the future, strengthens our faith. And furthermore, there is nothing that strengthens one's faith more than the promise of a coming Savior. Fearful hearts are comforted. Dread is stilled and unbelief is turned to faith when the Word of God focuses our eyes on the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, judgment is coming. In fact, it will come in just a few years. The historical record reveals this. Two years later, in 732 B.C., Assyria destroyed Syria. Ten years after that, Assyria takes Israel captive. And then 65 years after that, as verse 8 predicts, 669 B.C., the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal repopulates Israel with the foreigners, with the remaining Israelites that were left in the land, and they begin to intermarry. And as a result of that, the Samaritans, who the Jews called half-breeds, came into development. And by the time we get to 650 B.C., the Assyrian Empire covered the whole Fertile Crescent, which would be Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, 
Israel, and Egypt, all except 150 acres known as Jerusalem. The king at that time was Hezekiah. And in order to keep Sennacherib from taking Jerusalem, he had a tunnel excavated that was 600 yards through solid rock so he could get water into the city. And then by 587 B.C., Babylon takes Judah captive. So yes, Ahaz, there are hard days ahead. Yes, there may be hard days ahead for you. But God makes it clear that in his sovereignty, even those dark days work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is always working out his plan. And here, from among his remnant people, He's going to preserve one little obscure family. They will be forgotten all about. They're going to eventually emerge from the house of David. And one day on census day, they will make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And there, the virgin will bring forth a son. And he will be called the son of the Most High. The word made flesh dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God himself is with us. But that's not the best part. The best part is, he will save his people. That's the best part. He will save his people not temporarily. Not to get them out of the earthly trials like Ahaz was hoping. No, God is going to give something way more wonderful. Ahaz, you're worried about Tiglath and Rezin and Pekah and all these earthly kings with their earthly empires. There's a deliverance that you need that can only be found in the child that is to come in the fullness of time born of a woman, Emmanuel who is the Lord Jesus Christ so what's the conclusion this is a lesson that we need this Christmas the message that we celebrate at Christmas time is that not God is going to show up And rescue us from all of our troubles and sorrows and hurts and pains or suffering. If that is what Isaiah told Ahaz, then Ahaz should have doubted him. But that's not what Isaiah proclaimed. We should never trust anyone that tells us that God has come to make us healthy, happy, and prosperous. Because that's not the gospel. God's promise is not that everything will be great in this life. In fact, the promise is not even that everything will be good in this life for those who love God. That's not the promise. God's promise instead is that everything, and I mean everything, I mean every single thing, the bad things and the hurtful things, the hard things, everything will work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is the promise. God is not going to necessarily deliver us from difficulty, but he will sustain us through difficulty. 
He will deliver us from sin. He will deliver us from death. He will deliver us from hell. And He will deliver us into the fellowship with Him and the joy and the peace that comes from being sustained in every single trial until we see Him face to face in glory. This is the promise for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. This is the message of Christmas. That God is with us through every trial, through every trouble, through every sorrow, through every hurt, through every pain, through every suffering. This is the message of Christmas. That God is with us. That He is Emmanuel. That God is with us at all times. And that God was incarnate in Jesus Christ. And He lived a perfect life. And He died a perfect death. And He was raised again on the third day to satisfy the wrath of His Father God for everyone who believes. That's the Christmas promise. And if you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And in this passage of scripture, we've learned that the only firm foundation for our faith is the child of the virgin. Faith can only be firm when its foundation is Emmanuel. And if you want to be able to face dark days that are ahead of you, trust me, they are coming. If you want to face tomorrow without fear, then the foundation of your faith must be in the rock that will not move. And that's Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the message of Christmas. It's not about lights. It's not about movies. It's not about the tinsel and the trees. I love all of those things. But that's not Christmas. Christmas is not make-believe. Christmas is not escape from reality. It is a hope that in the midst of the reality of life, it is assurance that even though the dark days may come, in Jesus Christ we have confidence that can't be shaken. And so we have no reason to fear because our faith is in Christ. And so is your faith firm because that is how you face the difficult days with joy and peace. Is your faith firm? Firm in your faith. Firm through it all, knowing Emmanuel, he is with us. May the Lord help us this Christmas to fix our eyes on Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God with us, that in him we might find hope to the praise and the glory of his great name. Do you know him today? And are you truly trusting in him? That's the question. Do you know him? And are you truly trusting in him? How firm is your faith this morning? Because without it, you will surely fail. Let's pray.